Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I am your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number 21 for the week of November 8th, 2020. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my explanations of various health disorders and medical conditions. As a physician, I have come to realize that while our gift and talents as professionals is geared towards saving lives, what we accomplish more often is an extension of life, longer than would naturally take place. However, the highest virtue in the healing process is to also improve the quality of life, which we have extended. With that principle in mind, my goal is to provide my listening audience with a mental picture of how our bodies normally function, describe a malfunctioning organ or biological system, and finally, mention a few solutions the medical profession utilizes to mitigate some of those problems. Ultimately, my intention is to impress and motivate everyone to cultivate a lifestyle and wellness model that promotes optimum physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. The human body is a magnificent creation designed with precision and order. The first functional organ to develop is the heart. It develops from embryonic tissue called mesoderm. Mesoderm is one of the three primary germ layers that differentiates into early development to give rise to all subsequent tissues and organs. The heart begins to develop near the head of the embryo in a region called the cardiogenic area. Cells that will differentiate to become the heart start to migrate from the cardiogenic area around day 18 or 19, a mere three weeks after fertilization. Gradually, two strands of cells called cardiogenic cords from the left and right halves of the cardiogenic area cluster together and multiply. Around day 20, these two cords hollow themselves out to form what is called endocardial tubes. Around day 21, the two endocardial tubes fuse together into a primitive heart tube. Around day 22, the heart actually starts to beat and circulate blood cells to other developing areas of the embryo. Around day 28, four weeks from fertilization, an internal septa develops, separating the heart into upper chambers called the atria and lower chambers called the ventricles. Between weeks 5 to 8, the atrioventricular valves form. The right one is called the tricuspid valve. The left one is called the bicuspid or mitral valve. Similarly, the semilunar valves develop between weeks 5 through 9. 
the right one, is called the pulmonic valve. The left one is called the aortic valve. Thus, by the eighth week of development, the fetal period begins and the heart is nearly complete. The only difference between a fetal heart and an infant or adult heart is a foramen ovale, which is an incomplete closure of the septal wall between the right and left atria. Cells around the foramen ovale normally will span the gap and completely seal the opening during early infancy. In the case of a fully formed and mature heart, blood from the body returns to the right upper chamber of the heart, or the right atrium, depleted of much of its oxygen content, but loaded with CO2. We call this oxygen-poor blood deoxygenated blood. The deoxygenated blood returned to the right atrium will then pass through the tricuspid valve and into the right ventricle. The right ventricle pumps the deoxygenated blood through another valve called the pulmonic valve, which goes into the lungs, where carbon dioxide is exchanged for fresh oxygen that was picked up from the last inhalation or deep breath. Now, this oxygen fresh and rich blood is returned to the heart into the left atrium. From the left atrium, the oxygen rich blood passes through the mitral valve and into the left ventricle, which is the main pumping chamber of the heart. Finally, the oxygen-rich blood is pumped from the left ventricle through the aortic valve and into the aorta, where it is distributed to the rest of the body. Today, I'd like to discuss a particular type of congenital heart defect called Tetralogy of Fallot. This disorder was originally known as Blue Baby Syndrome. A French physician, Etienne Louis Arthur Fallot, attended and graduated from medical school in Montpierre in 1867. In 1888, he described the anatomic characteristics of this congenital defect. As the prefix tetra implies, tetralogy of Fallot is a constellation of four different defects. One is pulmonary stenosis, creating a right ventricular outlet tract obstruction. Number two is a ventricular septal defect, creating a shunt of blood from the right to the left. Number three, deviation of the aorta to the right, creating a positioning and placement of the aorta that rides 
between the right and left ventricles, thus circulating mixed deoxygenated blood. And number four, there is hypertrophy or thickening of the right ventricular muscle wall, creating what is called pulmonary hypertension. The prevalence of Tetralogy of Fallot in the United States is approximately 4 to 5 cases per 10,000 live births. This defect accounts for 7 to 10 percent of congenital heart disease cases and is one of the few cardiac conditions requiring intervention within the first year of life. It is hypothesized that sometime around day 21 to 30 of embryologic development that I previously described, that's the time when most of the abnormalities of Tetralogy of Fallot occur. The need for medical intervention is dependent on the degree of ventricular outflow tract obstruction. They are graded as severe, moderate, or minimal. Patients with severe obstruction have inadequate pulmonary flow into the lungs, and they typically present in the early newborn period with profound cyanosis or blue color. Patients with moderate obstruction and balanced pulmonary and systemic outflows usually come to clinical attention during an evaluation for a murmur. These children may also present with hypercyanotic or what is called tet spells when the right ventricular outflow tract is obstructed during periods of agitation. Tet spells typically present as periods of profound cyanosis that occur because episodes of almost total right ventricular outflow tract obstruction occur. They typically arise when an infant becomes agitated or an older, uncorrected child has vigorous exercise. Management of a TET spell requires a rapid and aggressive stepwise approach. First, you place the child in a knee-to-chest position to increase their systemic vascular resistance, which will promote a movement of blood from the right ventricle into the pulmonary circulation rather than the aorta. And by moving blood into the pulmonary system, it gets oxygenated. If that is not effective, then you administer oxygen. And oxygen will create a vasodilatory effect in the pulmonary system and it will restrict the systemic vasculature, so it will enhance the delivery of oxygen into the blood. If these two methods fail, then we resort to medical intervention. We generally would administer to the infant IV fluid boluses 
with a dose of a narcotic, usually morphine. The fluids will improve the right ventricular filling and the pulmonary flow. The exact action of morphine, however, is still unclear. If this approach is ineffective, then we administer IV beta blockers like propranolol. The beta blocker will relax the right ventricular outflow tract and improve pulmonary blood flow. Now, if that doesn't work, then we resort to another medication called IV phenylephrine. Phenylephrine will increase the systemic afterload or resistance, which will promote a flow into the right ventricle and into the pulmonary circulation rather than into the aorta. If these methods are not effective, then an emergency surgical repair is necessary. Neonates with ductal dependency may require early palliative intervention, such as a shunt placement or stenting before undergoing a complete surgical repair. Patients with minimal obstruction may present with increased pulmonary blood flow and heart failure, and some affected newborns may be detected by an evaluation prompted by a low pulse oximetry screening test. Some patients with minimal obstruction but increased pulmonary blood flow may develop heart failure symptoms and require pharmacologic treatment with medications such as digoxin or a loop diuretic like furosemide or both. In the surgical repair, most patients with tetralogy of Fallot undergo complete repair as their initial intervention by one year of age, but typically before six months of age. A small minority of infants require the palliative shunt or ductal shunt I mentioned earlier prior to surgical repair. Shunts or stents may be necessary due to the severe right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, or less commonly, medically refractory TET spells. Primary intracardiac repair is the treatment of choice for most patients with tetralogy of flow. This includes asymptomatic and acyanotic infants, meaning babies that do not have blue colorations and are not showing symptoms of distress. Surgical correction allows for normal growth of the right ventricular outflow tract and pulmonary annulus, a ring around the pulmonary valve. The goals of the surgical repair are to relieve the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which prohibits or minimizes blood flow going into the lungs. Another goal is to complete the separation between the pulmonary and systemic circulations, 
the pulmonary is the right side or right ventricle, and the systemic is the left side or left ventricle. Because that wall between the two ventricles is not completely formed, you have a passage of deoxygenated blood coming from the right side and mixing with oxygen-rich blood on the left side. Another goal of the surgical repair is to preserve the right ventricular function. If the right ventricle is passing blood into the left ventricle, it won't develop properly and it won't be able to effectively pump blood into the pulmonary artery and into the lungs. And finally, another goal of the surgical repair is to minimize a post-procedure pulmonary valvular incompetence. Again, because as the infant is developing into maturity, if they're not receiving blood flow in a normal fashion into the pulmonary artery, they're not going to develop a normal valve. The surgical repair consists of patching the incomplete closure of the ventricular septal defect and creating enlargement of the right ventricle, thus relieving the obstructed pulmonary flow. Peri- and post-operative complications may include a lower-than-normal cardiac output, cardiopulmonary arrest, or a heart attack, arrhythmia, an irregular rhythm of the heart, heart block, meaning the conduction of impulses is not completed, leading to pulmonary artery stenosis, and a narrow or small pulmonary artery impedes the flow of blood from the right ventricle into the lungs, and thus you can't get oxygenated blood. Pulmonary valve replacements may be necessary to restore the pulmonary valve competence and improve the right ventricular function. The optimal timing for pulmonary valve repair depends on symptom severity and impaired right ventricular function. Longitudinal follow-up care is required in all patients with Tetralogy of Fallot. Follow-up care is focused on identifying and managing long-term complications. Routine cardiac testing may include doing EKGs, echocardiograms, Holter monitors, which are extended periods of tracking the heart rate, exercise testing, and occasionally MRI or CT scans of the heart. The take-home message and points from today's discussion. Number one, the heart is the very first organ to develop during embryonic life. Number two, Tetralogy of Fallot is made up of four major defects. The outflow of blood from the right ventricle into the lungs is messed up, and they have narrow valves in the pulmonary area. 
Number two, they have a defect between the right and left ventricle wall. And this septal defect creates a shift of blood flow between the two ventricles. Number three, you have a displaced aorta so that it overrides or splits between the right ventricle and the left ventricle, and you get mixed blood being delivered into the systemic circulation and not enough oxygen. And number four, there is thickening or swelling of the right ventricle muscle wall called right ventricular hypertrophy. The third point I wanted to make from today's discussion is that most infants with Tetralogy of Fallot have primary complete repair rather than staged approach. And surgical repair is typically performed between the ages of three to six months. The last take-home point is that patients who have undergone Tetralogy of Fallot repair are at risk for chronic post-operative complications, which may require additional medical or surgical intervention. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. I encourage everyone listening to get your annual flu shots if you haven't done so already. Symptoms from the annual flu are indistinguishable from the coronavirus symptoms. Plus, you should want to be part of the solution and not the problem. To all the men and women who have served in the United States military, we thank you and remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who really are responsible for making this podcast possible. This episode is dedicated to the memory of a beautiful young man named William Wright. He fulfilled the 20 years he was given this past week demonstrating immense courage and enthusiasm for life. To Will and thousands of others like him who recognize that there are no ordinary moments, we love you. May our broken hearts gradually be repaired. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, May you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.